This is an IFTA screen discussion. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the IFTA screen discussion series, putting focus on each of the feature films submitted for this year's IFTA awards. Every week, we're putting the spotlight on a variety of diverse feature projects representing the best of Irish filmmaking. And today, I'm delighted to be joined by the filmmakers behind Holy Island. So I'm joined today by writer-director Robert Manson, producer Claire McCabe, actors Jean-Nicole Nionla and Connor Madden, and composer and sound designer James Latimer. So welcome, guys. And I'll start off with you, Robert. Um, I guess this is a film that can be sort of difficult to sum up in a, in a quick uh, quick summary or and difficult to, to define in simple terms. So I'm interested for you when you were trying to get the film initially financed and then trying to recruit people to work with you on it, what were the main sort of references you drew from in, in pitching to people what you were setting out to achieve? Well, in like one phrase, you can probably call this film a reflection of uh, Celtic purgatory and one that you would maybe construct off your own life or where you come from. Um, we had uh, a bursary uh, from the Arts Council, which is called the Authored Works. And uh, the main thrust of this uh, um, award is that they're looking for artistic projects that are sort of breaking the lines between how narrative can be constructed in a filmic context. Um, so they're looking for experimental filmmakers with uh, um, an auteur background. Um, I had made a feature film a few years previously, about five years before this, um, which was a lot sort of like self-financed and everything. So I think I brought that to the table, um, showing a film that could be made for uh, relatively uh, small means, but having a kind of a cinematic scope and festival potential and everything. So. That's uh, more or less what we went into our pitching session with. Um, and then, of course, like we had a rather a strange and uh, unique story um, that we wanted to tell. And uh, this was the perfect bursary and the perfect moment to try and uh, get the award. So we're very happy to, to get it and uh, build this lovely cast and crew that are here in part to discuss it further. And at what point do you get involved, Claire, as the producer? And, and how did you find the, the Arts Council bursary in terms of how it shaped the way that the film was being being pitched? Yes, yeah, so um, I got involved. Um, uh, Rob, uh, there was a producer, um, great producer called John Wallace, who hooked myself and Rob up. And um, we met and um, Rob showed me his previous work. And um, we chatted about Holy Island and uh, yeah, I really wanted to work with Rob and um, I really wanted to work on the project. So um, we went into the Arts Council and um, after we were selected, um, the bursary, um, I guess with other funding strands, you might have to go through like development for a while or a few years. But the amazing thing about the Arts Council um, bursaries, their production finance. So you can essentially go into production the following like in the following six months to a year. Um, so that was absolutely incredible. Um, and um, as Rob was saying, it's very much um auteur-led. Um, so we had complete like you know, creative freedom um with the script, and um we delivered a rough cut to the arts council for notes. Um, but I guess predominantly they were happy for us to kind of run with it and see what we could um, shoot in that year. Great. 
And so much of the film is obviously shot on location um, and in these locations that feel familiar, but also very strange. So I'm interested in for, for either of you uh, in terms of how you scouted these locations and ultimately like were able to navigate filming so much of it outdoors and, and on location in general. Yeah, well, while Rob was um, in Germany at the time and uh, it was when um, the pandemic was happening. So um, I um, scouted a lot of the locations with Rob's family members. <laughs> and so a lot of the filming is um, in and around Wicklow where Rob has grown up his whole entire life. And um, that's where scouting um, initially happened um, was with Rob's family um and then Rob came over then in pre-production and we nailed on the um locations with um a location scout and a location manager um but I'll let Rob speak about the importance of the locations because I know that was really important part of the story um yeah so I I would have shot in a lot of these locations um during university and film school doing kind of smaller productions with much smaller cast and crew numbers and um and basically, when you're making student films, no one really cares what you're up to as long as you don't, um, you know, do any damage to locations, exterior, interior. Um, so bringing uh, a feature film there is, is a different sort of, you know, uh, organization. It's a bigger beast. Like, so you have to take logistics into account, where is your base and what can certain locations withhold with, with regards to numbers. And we also had to follow protocols with regards to like the uh, pandemic and everything. So certain locations mightn't have been, um, our choice uh, locations mightn't have been available. So we had to be kind of uh, flexible and find uh, alternatives or, you know, sometimes having to switch a location at the last minute. But um, every location in the film is something that I would have maybe had some part of my youth uh, experienced in, be it like the bar would have been my very first, you know, job as a 13, 14 year old. Um, or like the beach is where I grew up, you know, close to Wicklow Town as well, where I went to school. So these are all places that I know for the entirety of my life, but maybe I haven't been to them in in over 10 years. So in a way, it's more an, an investigation of where I grew up as well. Um, that forms the basis of this sort of surreal analysis uh, when it comes to filmmaking, because once you've made a film in these locations, then it's sort of locked into the projects. That's it. You know, your your previous experience in those places it evaporates because all you can see is the film. So and you walk through the, the footsteps of the characters there afterwards. And so I'm kind of happy that they're all collected now. <laughs> mm -hmm. I don't I don't really have any kind of ownership of them anymore. It's they're a holy island. That's it. <laughs> And you've mentioned you both mentioned the challenges of the of the pandemic, but I, I wonder, do you think it feels like you've made the film almost at the perfect time in terms of the the kind of isolation and the eeriness that runs through the film is is almost as reflective of real life as it could ever be kind of in terms of the last two or three years? Do you think that there's something special about having made it in the past two or three years versus maybe seven or eight years ago? definitely added an extra surrealist uh, um, layer, I think, because everyone is locked inside their houses. So we had a lot of um, empty streets and empty towns. Um, yeah, so it definitely added an eerie quality to some of these places that would be much highly populated with people um, in, in what they are now, I guess, as well. Um, so yeah, it gave us the freedom to get out there and make the film and, um, 
yeah no one was on our backs or anything so it was yeah it was nice it was calm and it was sort of it added an extra presence to places because we didn't have to rush we could take our time and really like feel how you know becoming more organic in a, in a sense in a place like you know taking taking a moment to just pause and reflect before engaging in the actual filmmaking so i think that's definitely uh, seen on screen um for you james when you're when you're designing the sound for this um i suppose the the sound of the film is so important in creating this eerie atmosphere and things feel a little a little off kind of constantly so is it challenging for you compared to other things you've worked on to make sure that the sound kind of reflects the atmosphere that that, that Robert's been going for with this, the, the locations? Um, I, I wouldn't necessarily say difficult. I think that a lot of the picture kind of suggested a lot for me. Um, the setting, the black and white footage as well, in particular. I think, you know, and Rob's notes itself, like, you know, I think I got, I got it very early on. Like, my approach was initially as just a sound designer, and then I came on board as a composer. And it was definitely kind of the blend of those two things helped it helped me kind of, you know, juggle those two things. So if I did want to get creepy with the sound design, I could kind of kind of mold that and kind of fuse that with the score. So, uh, yeah, no, I think it was it was definitely all there. Rob, but Robert's references and kind of um, and him steering the way it was definitely something that I found kind of easy to jump into. And as well as uh, back to location and stuff as well, I just recently moved to Wicklow. So. It was kind of exploratory anyway for me to kind of get around the town and get my microphone out and find these kind of creepy little places. So a lot of the sound isn't necessary from libraries. A lot of it is actually kind of collected from this, from the town itself and the locations. So, yeah, I think, yeah, no, it wasn't difficult. You know, it was kind of, I found it quite, you know, easy to jump on board and kind of work with the picture, you know? Mm -hmm. And later in the film, I guess, music starts to play a more important role and there's music performed within the film what, between Robert and James was there discussions between the two of you in terms of how music would be incorporated or was that largely something you had planned in the script Robert well um I was going through a little bit of phase of watching like films by Paul Pressburger you know Colonel Blimp Canterbury Tales something like this like or even the matter and life death is a, is a good reference for the film aesthetically with the black and white and the color also the sound design and the 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 um the soundtrack is that there's a sort of intertwining between what the soundscape would be in general in the space, like a kind of reclusive and derelict spaces. But then there's these little sort of notes that would carry on the winds that create a sort of um, a self-awareness for the characters. Um, I didn't want to uh, in any way break any fourth walls or anything like that, but I like the idea that characters can sort of question their their um their 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 reality in, in, a, in a place based on some triggering elements and i think uh, james really pushed that element in the in particular with the music and how they kind of intertwined with the soundscape because one always links the other or one always triggers the other or there's there's something there that causes that that process to unfold i think and when you're when you're casting the film, obviously we have two of the the main actors here with us today. So, what were the main sort of uh, traits, I guess, of of these two characters? Then, obviously, Connor's character sort of evolves into into a younger version of the character. What were you sort of both looking for, and also how did you uh, kind of tell these actors what you wanted from them when they came in and started rehearsals for these parts? 
Well, first and foremost, I thought like, you know, again, harking back to a matter of life and death, that this is sort of elements that you're questioning, what is this space? And, you know, it's purgatory. So what is purgatory? It's timeless and ageless place where maybe all facets of your life can exist concurrently. And I thought also that maybe like there could be, you know, a child version of the David character lingering around somewhere in the background. And then there's definitely the teenage version which is um, portrayed by Dermot Murphy in the second part of the film. Um, Connor is there um, throughout the piece, and he is like the, the main, um, the main uh, participants in in the linear storyline. And of course, Rosa is some sort of like hybrid um, amalgamation of all characters in one that they all have to sacrifice themselves to to rescue this um, the hope the hopeful character at the end. And that they have a chance to to re-enter the world or to voyage across the sea to paradise. Um, but I'm I mean these were sort of my <laughs> general points and ideas. I, I'd be interested to see what well, the first expression or you know what was your idea of it, Connor and Shan? What, what do you think? Uh, maybe Connor first. What was your first interpretation of the script and what made you come on our voyage with us? Yeah, I um I um. Uh... I read it. I'd seen your um, previous stuff, um, your previous one with Ty Murphy, the one set in Berlin, and I really liked it. Really liked the, you know, your style and your eye or whatever. So when I when the agent got on to me with this, I was like, oh man, you know, it could be exciting or whatever. So I read the script and uh, spoke to you and was like, what, like, what's going on here? Like, what, what's this all about? You know? And then you said, like, oh, you've definitely read it, so because you don't know what's going on. Um, and I, I, I just really kind of liked the, um, you know, the kind of bleakness of it. Um, you know, I think that the bleakness of the of the guy, like basically, it felt like, um, you know, like everything had been spent for this guy. Like everything had been, he had done everything, he'd lived, and what was left for him to do, kind of, wasn't worth doing for him or something. That's kind of how it felt. That's how it felt for me, um, reading it or whatever. But uh, but yeah, but and then you like you told me some stuff and we had a chat about like Irish mythology and stuff like that. And I was like, this this would be great crack. And I think this was this just before COVID. No, it was just it was just as COVID was getting was was um getting going and uh, and then COVID <laughs> like COVID played a big like you were talking about how great it was like. We had to travel home. Like Claire used to drive me home with the windows open in the car to after twelve hour shoot in the rain, like the wind blowing in forty minutes up like in Wicklow or whatever. And like you're kinda of going <laughs> like, yeah, it was the right choice, but like there was there was points in the shoot. I was like, it's the right choice here. And my my wife was heavily pregnant at the time, so I couldn't see her for a while afterwards either. It was like you know, I didn't want to give her anything. But anyway, it was great. <laughs> <laughs> um, and Jean Nicole, what was your your first impression of the of the the project when Robert approached you for this part? Um, yeah, I was I remember reading it and being really drawn to Rosa as a character because um I suppose the similarities between myself and her. Um and yeah, the the feeling of like being an ancient soul, I've always felt really <laughs> old inside. 
and it yeah it just like resonated with Rose as a person and then I loved that it was set in kind of a a non-existent reality but also like a really familiar landscape so like you're reading parts of it and you're like oh that's very Irish there's the pub that's your taxi man but then also like none of it is familiar in its own way because it's its own world um yeah it just seemed like a really interesting project to get on board your character is probably the most normal behaved in the film to start with like um rosa is pretty chatty and friendly and doesn't seem to be as as kind of lost and disaffected by this weird environment as everyone else did you did you feel like you have to put a lot of the strangeness into your acting here or did you just play it as if rosa was living in a normal day in ireland like um I don't know if I'd call Rosa close to normal as the character. <laughs> um, I felt like she was really weird, but maybe yeah, in comparison to like the others. Um, yeah, um, I, I felt like she was playful with the world that she was in and aware of it not being normal. And just like, um, it's like when you, you're in a place and you don't really care about it. So you just decide to like take the piss. And I felt like Rosa does that with the world around her. Um, like any of us kind of would. Well, I would. <laughs> um, and Connor, your character obviously gets sort of switched out halfway through the film for this younger version. And you're both kind of um, existing simultaneously within the film. Do you... Uh, did you enjoy the challenge of of knowing another actor would sort of be sharing your part? And did you collaborate at all to try and uh, maintain some consistency of who this man was as the film goes on? Um, we talked a lot about it, but I really enjoyed, like, it was a funny thing, like acting, like, or I guess creating things is collaborative anyway. So I've never done something like this before, um, where somebody steps in basically and plays you um and so i was able to take things that he had he did and kind of like um rust them you know make them kind of just creakier so like some of his movements the way he sat and stuff dermot murphy um i was able to kind of just make a bit like a bit rustier you know that he'd been doing for years and like it's all fresh and full of joy um when dermot was doing it but like when it gets to 20 or 25 years later or whatever it was um it's like just he's I guess he's just a broken dude like not broken just like just kind of done with it all you know that's that's what it was so like so we 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 spoke a lot about it we you know had a over over a bottle of wine or whatever chatted about it but um but I let him like I didn't want to I let him lead you know that kind of way um he because he's the foundation like he's the the original David, you know. So my performance, uh, I could have picked things up after, after in life, in time, you know. So, um, but yeah, it, it was really cool. It was really interesting. Yeah. Great. Uh, I'd love to ask you, Robert, as well about the look of the film. It's obviously primarily in black and white, but there's there's really strong use of color that comes in, and there's footage that seems like a mix of archive footage and some footage you shot yourself that, that resembles archive footage I'm interested in what the balance is there um of what's archive and what's original and, and why you decided to use this black and white color kind of mix as well um well first and foremost our um amazing cinematographer Evan Barry was 
Um, we were building this kind of look together based on references and everything from modern to, to um, you know, I was also looking at a lot of uh, poetic realist films at the time, like uh, Jean Renoir and Jean Vigo, and basically films that I didn't really want to take too much influence from, but then became heavily influenced by the work. So um, in a nutshell, again, there's a citation in the uh, in the A Matter of Life and Death where the characters uh, who have recently died are they're um, in queue at the at the pearly gates to heaven and they're sort of discussing why is everything now in black and white and the answer to that question is because you're in heaven there's no life in heaven there's no time so um when one of the sentinels from from god is sent down to collect another character who's uh, forgotten that he's dead and has to you know get back in line up in heaven um the angel who goes down is thrown into beautiful technicolor and that would have been at the transitional point between black and white and technicolor and he sort of looks around and says, look, this color is so, so vibrant, you know, life is really for the living and earth is where life is. So in that, we wanted to try and translate that, that theory or that, that um, aesthetic foundation into our film. And uh, we're juxtaposing between like 5K footage from the red, which is all the black and white material, which would probably represent 85% of what you see on screen with some super 16 where the characters in moments of like real, um, forgetfulness of being trapped in a lifeless space recapture moments of their life so we see that in super 16 and dance sequences or in in moments where they break through that divide between living and, and stagnation um, and then over the top of everything there is an extra layer of material which is the super 8 archival footage that we got digitized and this all this footage comes from my father he would have shot it between 1978 and 1982 when he was at uh the Dunleary Art College, which was formerly housed actually in Dunleary. And um, I've been experimenting with that material for a couple of years, just using it for small little experimental art films and things. And I decided, come on, let's go for it. Like, let's, let's interweave this material into the whole film. And uh, the thinking behind that really is that it's, it's somebody else's memories. You know, it's not the memories of the characters per se. It's more so kind of a collective, um, memory pool or Gaia that's all souls swim through on that transitional period between living and dying. So um, it's a little bit of a trick for the audience as well. Like some audience members might turn around at the end of the film and say, oh, I really like that Super 8 material. That was my favorite part. Uh, if you do say that, then you've lost the game <laughs> because uh, it's, uh, it's meant to distract you. It's meant to sort of pacify you. And it's meant for the characters who perceive these images to sort of um, to stop living, you know, to become reclined and 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 wooden or whatever. So uh, Rose's character actively tries to prevent David's character from giving in to the momentary bliss of experiencing and enjoying these images that are not necessarily his. Um, but yeah, what does everybody else think on that uh, on that point? What did you think, Claire? I mean, everybody loves the Super Eight. And my dad is chuffed to bits to hear that. So it was a nice little creative handshake between me and him. We got to work on the film together in a way. So yeah, I love the Super 8. Um yeah, I love that. And that was definitely um there's that carnival moment at the end where um you're watching the film and then it's it's kind of like I don't know, you just breathe and sit in the cinema and relax as this like really great tune. I can't remember the name of the song that plays over that carnival section, 
Um, but yeah, it's just so great to see in a cinema um, and then to go back into the film and go towards uh, Rose's journey. She she um, runs towards the um, the the last scene that was shot in the boat. Um, so yeah, and um, it was amazing as well working with uh, Rob's dad, not on the Super 8 footage, but he was also the art director. Um, so like Rob's family brought so much to the film, like throughout from um, beginning to end, like uh, from the location referees to filming um, and to art direction. So, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I absolutely love the, the Super 8 section. Um, and I think like what's really um, amazing about, you know, Holy Island and what's what's so great about um, experimental drama that's coming out of Ireland is it's so different. Because um, I think every one of us, you know, like we work on a lot of different um, sections of film. We might work on commercials or we might work on TV drama. Um, and maybe James, can you can speak to this a little bit more, but um you know, you can really play with something that's artistic and experimental. And I know the conversations between, you know, Rob and and James and um, Rob and Connor and Jan, you could have a lot more kind of like fun with it. And we were all kind of like collaborating on it together rather than, um, I guess, you know, like um, a commercial or TV drama where this is what you have to do to... Um, get it broadcast or get it up online. Um, so there was a lot more kind of like freedom and um, integrity and creativeness um, throughout. That was amazing. Yeah, definitely. I think I, I agree. I think there's definitely the elements with, the, with, with an art house piece like this that anything is possible. And like, I have a lot of experience in delivering, being the final deliverables for festivals and stuff. And you kind of have to hit these specs and stuff. Now, not to say we didn't do it with this film, but I kind of pushed it in certain ways so we could be a bit more experimental, especially with the sound. And if a lot of people may see this on a, on a screen at home, but I think it's definitely a piece that was made for the cinema itself. Um, I'm sure like the idea with a lot of festivals, when you're submitting, a lot of the people that are in charge or programmers will watch it on a laptop. You know, and it's unfortunate, like you kind of hope to kind of get it past that point that it did, that it does play in a theater, because I think that's essentially what the film was made for, you know, and Rob being such a cinephile himself, I think that's his intention from start to finish. It's not about seeing it on a laptop or on a TV. Would you agree, Rob? Yeah, completely. Yeah. I mean, and I have to say thank you again for the um, the screening that we had in Savoy two weeks ago. That was sort of in a way, maybe my first arrival at the film as the kind of uh, audience member, um, because it would have been a little bit more maybe pressure from the, the launch in, in cinemas in October or festivals where you're really kind of experiencing it for the first time with people. So that was a beautiful moment just to sit with my friends and my family and, and really be in the film because the screen is so close to the to the sitting area in screen two in Savoy. And, Oh, it's spectacular. I, I, I'm still sort of reeling in that uh, that experience. So that was great. Thanks very much for that. What did you guys think, uh, Connor and Shan? Like, because I think like with the Super 8 in particular, like that was always a kind of a bonus package. I mean, you wouldn't really have known anything about it really in the script. I think it's sometimes maybe mentioned, but even my father was very surprised to see so much of Super 8 in the final cut. Like, because I, 
I'd used maybe 30 seconds in my previous film as a sort of an opener to try and get the audience on board with the character and make him a bit more compassionate, but not throughout like it is in this film. What did you guys think? Uh, Jean, maybe first. Um, I remember one of my yeah favorite um, was the same with Claire the car the carnival towards the end is something like really really special about that and it's it's so fun seeing that for the first time it being when you go to the cinema like I had no idea what was gonna what that was gonna look like I wasn't there for the filming of it no one was so I think it was like a really nice surprise for everyone when you come and you watch this piece it's yeah new completely new to everyone yeah it was really beautiful um and then I also loved what was the do you know the dance sequence with Rosa what was that shot on that was that was in super 16 yeah that was also yeah another favorite of mine I thought that was really stunning um yeah just that like alongside the music and everything like that just was a really special moment in the film and it's mad as well when it goes from black and white to color it's you really do feel that, like, I don't know, breath of life, don't you, just coming out in the characters? Yeah, totally. Do, do you guys as actors agree with kind of what Claire was saying about how uh, a film being more experimental probably gives a bit more space for you as artists to, to create something that maybe doesn't stick entirely to the script? Like, do you guys feel like you had more room than usual to sort of work yourselves and build these characters out and, and have more input? Yeah. I felt definitely that there was so much space and we were allowed a lot of time to chat that you wouldn't necessarily feel that you had in other circumstances and to just talk through things, understand things, give your own opinion, um, which is like just really nice to have that freedom as an artist or an actor. What about you, Connor? Yeah, I thought so too. I think that like on the just on the super eight thing you know there's a like robert said the the creative handshake between the father and son or whatever but it like it's cements the film in, in like a timeless space like i know the you know the whole film is in purgatory and it's timeless and whatever apart from it we're actually running out of time which that's funny but anyway though the the film is cemented in timeless space. That's what it feels like. I think it's absolutely beautiful, you know. Um, I think the um, in terms of performance or in terms of like creative freedom, I think it it makes you think differently about um, you know you you go from being like a small cog in a big machine to being a bigger cog in a big machine. That's what I felt like, you know. Um, it's uh yeah yeah it'll give i don't know it gives you some um real ownership of your performance you know or of your character um which is cool so and i think the way that you work as a director rob as well is you give people a lot of um space like i remember when um monica mcgann he was the priest in the film and he has a a really great soliloquy but um Rob and him they worked on it together and you know he could really kind of liberally express his artistic creativity through that soliloquy um which I think a lot of the times you might not get with um directors so yeah I think even in the way that Rob approached the film um it was to give everybody a little bit of space and uh, to chat about the process rather than just to shoot it yeah 
for you, Robert and Claire, are there projects you'd like to like, are you planning on working on projects in future that both of you individually, I guess, or together um, that are similar in this in terms of the stories they tell? Or would you like to work within this framework again, this sort of bursary or the sort of framework this bursary provided, I guess? Yeah, Rob has a million and one projects, so <laughs> I'll let you go first, Rob. <laughs> Um, well, I, I sort of, um, I fell into a little bit of a super eight black hole after this film. Um, so what I decided to do was to accumulate an, an awful lot of it and, uh, to get it uh, digitized again, to form again, a sort of, a, a, a sort of, a, a backbone for another project that I'm working on with the, with the arts council. Um, and because there was so much of it, it sort of organically split into two. So I have now two experimental documentary films that um, are on a new uh, theme. Um, and I finished the first part now, which is an hour long, fully super eight uh, film. <laughs> so uh, anyone who liked that stuff is gonna really like this. Um, um, yeah, I mean, the Arts Council are amazing just because they give you, you know, security as, as a creative um, and, uh, and just sort of like they, they 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 give you that grounding that that makes you know that you're 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 up for it you know you're ready for that project or you're up for you know for presenting um cutting edge material um on on a world stage so i'm very happy to be working with them again on on these two films and um yeah let's see where everything goes i guess Great. I think that's a great note to wrap up on. So thank you so much for chatting to me guys today and congratulations on Holy Island and uh, best of luck. And uh, I really appreciate getting to hear more about the making of the film from all of you. Thank you so much. Thanks very much. Thanks. Thank, thank you. Bye-bye.